Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. It's Here We Stand Again. That's uh, Sunday, June 11th. And before we start the show, I was reading something that I wanted to share with you. It was a recollection from George Orwell, his writings when he fought in the Spanish Civil War against fascism in the 1930s. And after his participation in some of the bloodiest battles, he wrote, Oh, how we stood in battle array, I shall recall to my dying day. For the look we had in our eyes, no power could disinherit. No bomb that ever burst shatters the crystal spirit. And I remember those words because I, too, will recall to my dying day the look in the eyes of formerly beaten down and tortured Native people standing up 25 years ago today to speak out about the genocide by Canadian church and state at our first public tribunal in that monstrous group crime, a crime that continues today. And on that June day in 1998 in Vancouver, I also recall being shoved in a corner and assaulted by a goon named Dean Wilson, who worked for a government puppet chief named Ed John, a gangster who threatened to kill me if I went through with our tribunal. Well, as you can see, I'm still here. And no bomb that ever burst among us destroyed me or our movement. It only made us stronger. And so we're here today on the show to celebrate that victory, to revive the censored memory of the Canadian genocide and how it affects us all today, and the grass movements that exposed and prosecuted it. And um, also, to, to continue that circle today, we are bringing you a very important news announcement. It's actually coming out tomorrow in a global media release. You can find it tomorrow, um, June 12th, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. But I'm going to rehash it a bit today. Um, it's a reissuing of the order that came out that banned the Catholic, Anglican, and United Church from Vancouver on March 4th, 2008. This was an order put out by our friend, uh, traditional Squamish uh, Chief Capilano, who banished um, these churches from his land. He entered the order into the B.C. Supreme Court, and we use this order. It's one of the reasons we're able to occupy those churches, and the police would never intervene, because the law was on our side. It gave me the legal right of entry into those churches. I was appointed as the fiduciary agent of Chief Capilano, who's the traditional elder for all of this area in Vancouver. So he owned lawful title, originally, of all of Vancouver. And that lawful order gave me the right to go into those churches and bring about those those actions. Um, and so the fact that two dozen of us were able to bring out the truth of genocide in Canada is because we had that order. Now, we are reissuing that order, not only in Vancouver, but all over the world. And uh, there's a deeper reason in Vancouver that we're going to get into over the next few shows. But you should know this week, um, there's a separate team, international peacekeepers and observers, that for a number of years have been monitoring the tunnel system under Vancouver, because as people may or may not know, a lot of heinous stuff goes on in Vancouver, uh, human trafficking, child trafficking, and other murderous events in this tunnel system under the, the Catholic Anglican United Churches in downtown Vancouver. Well, these teams will be going into that tunnel system in unison with our reclamation of these church buildings, because the reissuing of this order by Chief Capilano allows us to do that, to reclaim the buildings. And the, there's a order going out uh, tomorrow in Vancouver. It's directed at the churches. Basically, it says you are illegally trespassing on Capilano's land. The officials, employees, and members of those churches have to immediately vacate the premises or face citizen arrest for illegal trespass. People can't attend, they can't fund, they can't associate with those churches. 
not only under Capilano's order, but the International Common Law Court of Justice order of 2013 that found these churches all guilty of genocide. Secondly, the city of Vancouver is required to cancel all licensing, tax exemptions, and privileges enjoyed by these criminal churches, because if they don't, they're colluding as accessories to criminal organizations that are still trafficking children, um, laundering money, and so on. And so the city of Vancouver has to cancel any privileges and licensing for these criminal churches. Thirdly, the Vancouver Police Department is required by law to enforce this Supreme Court order. Now, this is going to be posted tomorrow. You'll be able to read the order and everything on the posting that I mentioned that we'll have online. But the police have to enforce the order. They have to help seize the properties uh, and assets of these churches because they operate from the avails of criminality. And they also have to protect those of us who are going to be occupying the churches. And if they don't, again, they're accessories. They're aiding and abetting criminal organizations. And finally, the fourth point, and this is going out in the banishment order that's going out all over Vancouver, the people of Vancouver are empowered under international law, and they're encouraged to seize and reclaim these properties, lands, and wealth of these churches and use them for public welfare. And one of the things we're doing, we've been putting out notices to the homeless people all over Vancouver to come in and just occupy these churches and take them over at their, at their permanent homes because they're forfeited under international law as being the property of criminal organizations. So they can you know, also call in the Vancouver police to assist them in these occupations or appoint their own common law peace officers. So the announcement going out tomorrow says that according to that power, I am calling on the police, these peacekeepers from other countries and the public to assist me as deputy sh- deputized sheriffs to enforce this notification and the order this coming week. We're also putting the city of Vancouver on notice, public notice, that if within seven days they don't comply with this order and stop the uh, privileges and the licensing for these churches and the tax exemptions, they're going to be formally charged with colluding with a convicted criminal power and they'll face sanctions, including at the ballot box. So copies of these notices are going out all this week. And um, it's an example of what we're doing on the ground, not just to talk, but to finally enact things that have been latent for a long time. The fact that the law is on our side, morality is on our side. And, you know, the when uh, Bergoglio, so-called Pope Francis, admitted after going to, Jan- to Canada last summer, he said, yes, it was genocide. People wonder, well, why wasn't he arrested on the spot? Because under the system they operate, under their laws, which aren't laws, they're just in-house club rules of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church can literally kill anyone they want and get away with it. That's why he knew he could say it was genocide and not face prosecution. Well, we have to turn that system on its head, folks. It's a criminal system. It's been on around for too long. We begin to end it, not with words only, but by shutting down their churches on the ground and cutting off their source of funding. That's what you do under international law. So we are going to be listening today uh, to a recap of the very important document is going out summarizing all this. It's called Truth and Consequences, the Definitive Summary of Genocide and its Cover-Up in Canada. It's going out to world leaders, uh, to human rights agencies, the media, groups all over the world, our Common Law Republic Network. And you can, again, read it online tomorrow, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates under June 12th. We've been demonstrating the power of persistence. It's now up to all of us to take up the struggle. Because like I often say to folks, you know, if you can't get involved and outraged over the ongoing murder of children, what can you get involved in? 
this is part of a bigger spiritual battle. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks ahead. The real banishment going on against these churches is a spiritual kind that we started in Rome in 2009, where we performed that exorcism at the Vatican. And we have to fight on all those fronts. So we're going to be going into more of that, but for today, here's the show on the full panorama of what we're talking about when we say genocide in Canada, because it's not just Canada. It was the prototype here that was applied all over the world, and what started as genocide against one group is now omnicide aimed at all of us through the COVID corporate police state. So enjoy the show. Write to us, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com, especially if you live in Vancouver, Canada, you want to get on board on this reclamation and occupation movement, write to us at that email. Here's the show. Stay strong. Stay clear. I thank you. And so in that spirit, I'm going to begin today by sharing with you something that's going out this week. It's a public advisory that's going to be released to the world media and governments this week to prepare for our June 12th campaign and that 25th anniversary of our tribunal. It's a summary of the crime and cover-up of genocide in Canada and the history of our campaign that exposed it. It's called Truth and Consequences, a definitive summary of the crime and cover-up of genocide in Canada. It's based on 25 years of active campaigning and research gained from over 300 eyewitness survivors of the residential school death camps, from government and church documents, and even from forensic evidence and children's remains that were unearthed at mass graves in five former Indian residential schools. Murderbydecree.com has all of that. That research and campaign began 25 years ago this June 12th at our public tribunal in Vancouver. And here's the thing. Over those past 25 years, none of this evidence that you hear today has ever been refuted, denied, or challenged in court or publicly by any group or individual, including the people named in our court cases. That means that this evidence and the verdicts against the guilty churches and governments stand as uncontested fact and as the truth under the law. The Truth and Consequences document also includes a section called Targeted for Destruction, the Criminal Conspiracy Against Kevin Annett, and that's a very key document because it shows how this attack on our movement really began with the assault and attempted destruction of my life when I first began to bring out this truth in 1995. All of that will be posted at murderedbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. But let me begin by sharing with you the main points of this document, uh, Truth and Consequences, a definitive summary of the crime and cover-up of genocide in Canada. Let me say, first of all, that as part of this, for those of you who don't know, because the memory has been so effectively swabbed now off the media and the Internet, I helped convene the first tribunal into these crimes from June 12th to 14th, 1998, and wrote the final report of that ERM tribunal. I co-founded the Truth Commission into Genocide in Canada in 2001, the Friends and Relatives of the Disappeared in 2005, which was the group that led those occupations and protests at churches across Canada, and finally, the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State in 2010. I served as the advisor to the International Common Law Court of Justice, successfully convicted the Vatican, the British Crown, and Canada for crimes against humanity in February 2013. And I authored, I've authored 22 books and the documentary film on Repentant, which you can see online, murderbydecree.com. Also, you um, also need to uh, realize that the part of this whole cover-up involves what I remember an RCMP officer, Peter Montague, said early in our campaign uh, when he, he was talking about the takedown of our movement. He says, 
take out Annett and you take out the issue. And uh, that's why part of the smear was, well, Kevin Annett is trying to speak for the Indians. Don't forget that it's like a man addressing rape. Men have to take responsibility for what they do to women, just like the dominate culture in Canada has to take responsibility for our ongoing crimes of genocide. So that's one of the things that obligates me. I'm speaking to my people, to all of us, because of this. But I'm also an adopted member of the Anishinaabe Ojibwe Indigenous Nation and the group that gave me the name Eagle Strong Voice. And um, I also am the acting legal agent for traditional Squamish Chief Capilano in Vancouver. So that actually gave me the right of legal entry and the right to evict these churches. But we're going to get into that. Let me, first of all, as background to that, and I mentioned the background because there are listeners, human rights observers, and um, judicial advisors that are listening in today from Europe and across North America, Turtle Island, that need that necessary information because part of this recording is going to be used as evidence in the upcoming trials. So... First of all, the background, the, the summary of the crime of genocide in Canada. Between 1889 and 1996, the deliberate, systematic murder of generations of Indigenous children was committed by Canadian government and the Privy Council in London, the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches, in special internment camps run by these churches and deceptively called Indian residential schools. Second point. In those camps, over 60,000 children died because from the first year of their operation, the average annual death rate was between 25 and 70 percent, a genocidal mortality level that was reported in not only 1891, but 1949. For over half a century, really six decades, constant, massive genocidal death rate. That enormous mortality was caused by deliberate practice by all the churches that's been admitted in writing and in the press that... Of all the churches that run these camps, they had a practice of deliberately starving children and housing the healthy ones with the sick, those dying from tuberculosis and smallpox, and then deliberately de denying them medical treatment and care. In other words, a regime of institutionalized germ warfare. The explicit purpose of that operation was genocidal, to depopulate the remaining indigenous nations and destroy the foundations of the culture in order to grab their lands and resources. From its inception, this genocide was authorized perpetrated and concealed by every level of state, judicial, police, and religious authority in Canada until these death camps officially closed in the year 1996. Next, every crime defined as genocide under international law occurred in these internment camps, including murder, mental and physical torture, starvation, slave labor, systemic beatings and gang rape, destruction of family bonds, sexual sterilizations, medical experimentation, and daily mandatory brutality. These crimes were inflicted on children as young as four years old, according, get this, to an officially prescribed death quota and torture regimen established by the churches and approved by the Canadian government. And I know that because in the records introduced in these court cases that we're involved in, they introduce the punishment logs, which in all these different death camps recorded that between a third and a half of the children had to die every year and prescribed forms of torture to ensure that. Next, the master plan for this whole operation was adopted on November 25, 1910, at a meeting in Ottawa of senior officials of the Canadian government and the Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches, the latter two churches being the forerunners of the United Church of Canada. That plan was made Canadian law by a special order in council, 
dated July 1st, 1920, that required every indigenous child be interned in an Indian residential school where their parents would go to jail. These death camps called residential schools were explicitly Christian operations run by the aforenamed churches with government sanction and funding. The camp principals were clergymen appointed by their churches who had life and death power over the interned children, since the principals were appointed by the government as a legal guardian of these children in 1929. After 1920, the federal government of Canada assisted and enabled these murderous church operations by abolishing all medical inspection in the death camps as soon as the huge mortality rates were reported. They respond by stopping medical inspection. They suppressed reports of the deaths of children year after year. They denied Aboriginal people the right to vote, to sue in court, or hire a lawyer. They legislated the involuntary sexual sterilization of any Indian residential school child, and they deputized the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to serve as the police arm of these death camps and to use, quote, any means and force necessary to imprison these children and then track them down when they ran away and then secretly dispose of their bodies when they died. Part B, the cover-up. From the beginning, these Christian death camps targeted Indian residential school children for either enslavement or extermination, and they did so under a fog of officials, church, and state deception and secrecy, and behind the false title of Indian residential schools. Reports of the enormous death rates in these camps were routinely suppressed. The murderous practices responsible for these deaths were never investigated or curtailed, and in their entire 107-year history, no residential school death camp employee or church official was ever reprimanded for harming or killing a child, but instead were routinely and officially exonerated by the government and its Indian agents. No one, despite all this, no one has ever been charged or tried in a Canadian court for the deaths of these 60,000 children. Nor has Canada or the churches ever been charged with genocide at the United Nations, despite their having committed all five acts of genocide, as defined by the UN Convention on Genocide, which was ratified by Canada in the year 1952. And, despite the requirement by that convention, that all perpetrators of genocide, including authorities, must be prosecuted and punished. Instead, the criminally complicit churches have been legally indemnified and continue to receive tax exemptions and privileges under Canadian law, a fact that makes every Canadian taxpayer an accessory to crimes against humanity. Since at least 1960, and especially after the first public exposing of these crimes by yours truly and native eyewitnesses, In September 1995, the Canadian government, the RCMP, and the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches have systematically destroyed the evidence of their crimes and obstructed justice. They have censored and obliterated the records, silenced and killed survivors and whistleblowers, destroyed the remains and mass graves of children who died in these camps, and constructed a false, deceptive narrative that makes it all seem benign and compensatable. This enormous falsification and cover-up culminated in an official whitewash known as the Truth and and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC, which was established by the guilty churches and government themselves to misrepresent, conceal, and decriminalize the residential school genocide and thereby subvert and obstruct justice. So the question is, why are these churches still allowed to operate? Third point, Section C the campaign to expose and prosecute this genocide. 
At a public meeting in Vancouver on February 9, 1998, the author, yours truly, Kevin Annett, and death camp survivor Harriet Nahani launched an independent grassroots campaign to document and publicize the Indian residential school crimes and eventually prosecute the government and churches responsible. That campaign sponsored the first human rights tribunal into these crimes, June 12 to 14, 1998, in Vancouver, under the auspices of the United Nations affiliate IRAM, the International Human Rights Association of American Minorities. After that event, and based on the evidence presented, IRAM recommended to the UN Human Rights Commission and its secretary, Mary Robinson, that Canada and its churches be charged with genocide. But diplomatic pressure from Canada prevented that action. Despite that, over the next decade, I, Kevin Annett, and Harry Nahani rallied many death camp survivors in an independent truth commission into genocide in Canada, founded in the year 2000, that published the first detailed accounts of Indian residential school crimes, including eyewitness testimonies, documents, and forensic and evidence from mass graves. The commission and our offshoots launched high-profile protests, church occupations, and conferences that forced the Christian death camps onto Canada's political agenda. Those actions caused a groundswell of pressure that forced the Canadian government to issue a limited apology for Indian residential schools on July 8, 2008. But by this time, Herod Nahani had been murdered in prison, in Surrey Remand Prison, and, the, and Kevin Annett and the movement censored and shut down by the church and state cover-up campaign that culminated in the aforenamed TRC. Nevertheless, the impact of what Harriet and I began went global. In June 2010, I was invited to Ireland by Catholic Church torture survivors, and we formed the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State, the ITCCS. Between 2012 and 2014, the ITCCS sponsored two common law court trials that prosecuted and convicted Canada and its churches for genocide and forced from office Pope Benedict and three Catholic cardinals. These victories rebounded back to Canada and kept alive and legitimated the issue of the Indian residential school mass graves, compelling a new escalating round of church-state cover-ups and public spin campaigns that continue today. Well, the latter part of this report is called The Continuing Crime and Consequences. While genocide historically has been a normative tool of church and state, in Canada it's an institutionalized buttress of the nation. The dispossession and extermination of indigenous nations has been required by Canada's resource extraction-based economy and its dependence on foreign investment, which today is increasingly from China. China is leading a massive assault on the lingering land-based indigenous communities all over northern BC and Alberta in order to seize the liquid natural gas and oil in that area and populate the region with illegal Chinese immigrants. Indigenous families are being dislocated, assaulted, and killed in the latest round of genocide spearheaded by China and its corporations like PetroChina and Sinopec. This attack is receiving the active support of the Canadian government, the RCMP, and these churches that continue to traffic and murder Indigenous children. Well, as part of China's economic penetration of North America, this recent genocide is being administered by the Aboriginal elites who are among Canada's chief corporate partners on the West Coast. Since 2020, tribal councils have signed oil and gas export agreements with Beijing that exceed $25 billion. These agreements require that the native elites facilitate the Chinese uh, takeover by trafficking their own children and expelling their own people from their traditional lands and denying them housing, jobs, and benefits, thereby hastening their destruction. In effect, China is assuming the genocidal mantle once worn by the British Crown in Canada, 
with the native bourgeois elite playing the same middleman role in this extermination that they've always done. In other words, Western Canada has become the front line of a massive geopolitical battle between America and China for the control of natural resources and hegemony. Traditional, unincorporated indigenous people are caught in the middle of this conflict and are slated for extermination. But their elimination is the precursor of a similar and more generous general assault on humanity, the COVID corporate police state whose methods and statutes are modeled on the genocide of indigenous nations has been the Trojan horse to usher in a new era of a China-led global corporatocracy that's eradicating not just democracy and the rule of law, but mankind's future. What began as genocide is blowing back now on everyone as omnicide. Now, I'm going to take a short break. I'm going to let you listen to the actual voices of survivors, and this is taken from the videotape testimony we submitted to the International Kamala Court of Justice during 2012 and 2013. That's why when you're listening to this eight-minute clip, there will be breaks, because this is videotaped evidence, which you can see, again, online, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS archives. After this break, listening to the voices of eyewitnesses, including William Coombs, We'll be back with more. Irene Favel, I'm 75. I went to residence and school in Muskogo in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. As a young girl, she was seven years old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They took the baby, wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. And you could smell the, the, you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. So after my brother got better, he needed to go back to the mush hole. And we didn't go back for that next year. But it was some time after that, during the time that, um, that we were out of school for the summer, that he had, and we were going to go back. And he told me, he said, you know what happened to all of those kids that were there at the mush hole? He said, do you remember that? And I said, yeah. I said, our, our dorm was just full of girls. And he said, yeah, so was ours full of boys. And he said, um, did you, uh, do you remember, do you know what happened to them? And I said, no. And he said, they called in the army and they, and they took them to the army base and they, and they shot them. They stood them all along this big hole and they shot them. And as, as um, when the bullets hit them, they fell into the, into the uh, hole. And, um, and he said, when they were all done, he said, those that, that had, hadn't fallen into the hole, uh, some of them were still alive. He said, some of them were still alive in the hole. And he said, they came along and, I want to say a bulldozer. That what comes to my mind, but I'm not really sure that my brother had said a bulldozer. They came along with a 
a big machine anyway, and they and they shoved them all in that big hole and they covered it up. And um, and he says um, that's what happened to them. And I must have been about eight, I guess, or seven or eight, somewhere through there. Let's see, that must have been 43 or 44. Here we are, second day of the dig near the mush hole. And this is an area about 100 yards from the school where we found consistent bone samples. And these regular types of buttons, probably off of, well, clothing obviously. But the interesting thing is here and at the Glebe site, they're of the same style as if they're off a standard uniform or something. Could be a child's button off a school mm -hmm. uniform. Scary finding those little skulls in there. What were those little skulls? Where did they come from? Could you describe what they look like? Tiny little ones. Two little skulls. Tiny baby ones. And they're in here. I feel that fear we had running upstairs through that door. And uh, I spent five years in the, uh, well, the Canadian government calls it residential schools, but really these were prisoner of war camps. I was one in the one called the Mohawk uh, Institute. Starved us, beat us, froze us. And uh, it, it was horrific. There was no controls in the place. Kids were always getting beat up or being put through various torture uh, uh, rituals. A lot of the kids were tortured in there. They were made to hang off uh, hot pipes until uh, they couldn't hold on anymore and they just fell to the floor from the roof. And uh, they were beaten. Whenever someone felt like it, uh, made to hold on to electric fences. And the ministry found out I was pregnant and they told me to have an abortion and after I have the abortion to have a tubal ligation so I won't have any more children. They said if I didn't, didn't um, have a tubal ligation then I would never see my daughter Patricia again. which was totally out of bounds and, uh, and me and a friend uh, witnessed uh, two of them, the uh, sisters or brothers uh, taking uh, look like little bodies under uh, white uh, wrappings or white cloth and uh, putting them into the uh, uh, into the uh, furnace. And the queen came and visited, visited for about three days, uh, two, three days, I don't know how long it was, I think it was about three days actually, and a lot of children went missing there. Many children 
that that weren't cooperative, um, like myself, uh, wasn't cooperative, and they were put into uh, the uh, with the children who were sick with with uh, at the end of the uh, dormitory. They kept the sickies there, the ones who were sick with tuberculosis, and um, they they put me and my brother Ernie in with with the ones who were sick because uh, because we wouldn't comply. In the same room with people who had TB, um, they didn't separate but us. Then we were forced to play with them. The nuns made us play with those kids. We didn't want to get sick either, but they they were forcing us to play with those kids. And also, they made some of them sleep with the other kids. I would have loved to have seen the, uh, the perpetrators uh, severely punished for all of this. And I would the, the greatest thing I'd, I would want to see is the Church of England get barred from practicing in Canada. It's just insane, like, you don't murder children and get away with it. And I work every day to protect children, and it just really bothers me that, that so many of our children have been killed. And, and nothing's ever been done about it. Like, you read about it, and, and there's information on it all over the place, but nothing's ever been done about it. So why should these people, the churches and the government and Indian Affairs, were all in on this as well, why should they get away with killing our children? It's just not right and something needs to be done about it. Something needs to be done about it, and we tried, and we met the wall of uh, repression that happens when the criminals are still in power. And then they follow that up with denial and cover-up on a massive scale, so the memory and the erasure is so erased that people don't even remember what happened. And that's why this week and beyond, as we always do, we're going to be showing how this crime has not only invalidated the system, but empowers all of us to take action. And I want to, uh, if you remember from that, those quotes, and I hope you use this show today and you play it in classrooms and all over the world, to show that throwing children in ovens, shooting them at the edge of ditches, uh, and even forcing uh, sterilization still today on Native women, all that went on and does go on in this wonderful, nice country called Canada. But this sec, uh, last part of the report is entitled Legal, Political, and Moral Consequences of the Canadian Genocide. Under the Law of Nations and the aforenamed UN Genocide, uh, Genocide Convention, the consequences of deliberate state-sponsored genocide are clear. The perpetrating powers must be prosecuted and punished by the world community. As self-admitted and convicted genocidal powers, the government of churches in Canada and their Crown and Vatican sponsors in London and Rome are criminal organizations that have lost their authority and right to govern or operate. Their officers must stand down and be prosecuted, and their wealth, assets, and properties are forfeit because they're the avails of criminality, and they can be lawfully seized, including by the citizens. The, citizen, the members of those churches and, and powers are absolved of all duty and allegiance to those bodies, and they must not fund or associate with them. That means every member of a Catholic Anglican United Church, every priest, every clergy, every official, must not have anything to do with their church or fund it anymore, or they're guilty of colluding in a crime against humanity. And that's according to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in 1998 and the UN Convention on Transnational Criminal Organizations, 
in the year 2000. And that's what these churches are, transnational criminal organizations whose rights and money and land are, are forfeited. Well, the United Nations and its courts have continually refused to enforce their own genocide conventions, and they've allowed Canadian church and state to evade and subvert justice and absolve themselves of intergenerational mass murder of children. As a result, indigenous survivors of the Canadian genocide and their allies have been forced to apply these international conventions themselves, including through the aforesaid verdict of the International Common Law Court of Justice and indigenous proclamations, which I'm going to refer to in the latter part of the show. Foremost among these native proclamations is the eviction and banishment order issued by traditional Squamish chief Capilano and entered into the B.C. Supreme Court on March 4, 2008. That order expelled the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches from Capilano's traditional territory, which encompasses the entire city of Vancouver. Now, a copy of this order will be posted on our material when it's online at murderbydecree.com. But it's important to remember that we used this order, and I know because I was there, I showed it to the police when we began to occupy churches in Vancouver. We used it successfully to get the police to stand down and cooperate during our peaceful occupation and reclamation of those churches and anywhere that we did these actions. It's why we were never interfered with, because the police knew the law was on our side. That's our power. And it also empowered me, Kevin Anna, Eagle Strong Voice, to act as Capilano's legal agent to enforce the eviction and banishment order, including by giving me the legal entry, right of entry into these churches to seize them, seize their properties and assets. It's just a question of acting on the power that we have, folks. And we'll get to that, about how to do that in the latter part of the show. Well, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the IRM Tribunal, that first exposed this genocide, and armed with recent indigenous proclamations, which we'll name in a moment, survivors and their allies will be recommencing the public seizure and reclamation of the properties and wealth of these criminally convicted churches. And there'll be more details of that next a week tomorrow, Monday, June 12th. Stand by for a global press conference and series of actions starting that date, June 12th. Well, the moral and systemic repercussions of this genocide that's become omnicide and the required disestablishment of its perpetrators are profound because as the chief American prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, Robert Jackson observed, quote, the wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Well, having been repeated time again in again in Canada, before, during, and since the Nazi era, these same genocidal atrocities by Christian churches have condemned all of us unless we uproot the institutions, the ideologies, and the allegiances that are responsible for the massacre of the innocent. In a nutshell, that means you have to stop attending these churches. You've got to help us reclaim them. You've got to stop paying taxes to a criminally convicted Canadian government under Crown authority and keep those taxes in your community. It's part of the program of our new Republic of Canada. That requires as well a radical cleansing that begins within each one of us, since we are all part of an historic and inherent group crime that's carrying on. And so we've begun that transformation by personally separating from these criminal churches and states and enforcing the law that evicts, banishes, and reclaims them and their wealth, their lands and properties, anywhere in Canada, under our own sovereign jurisdiction, specifically under the common law of republic assemblies and courts that we've been setting up across Canada. 
We are making that separation permanent by creating these new political and spiritual associations that conform to the requirements of the law and natural justice and replace the old genocidal regime. To do anything less is to be an accomplice to ongoing mass murder and to stand condemned alongside the killers of generations of children. Now, this statement, the truth and consequences, is going to be issued a week tomorrow, Monday, June 12th, as a global media advisory, and it will be entered along with other material into the dockets of various courts around the world as part of new legal actions that are going to be enforced now with our sheriffs and other other police who have been deputized for this, as well as peacekeepers and international observers who will be coming to the west coast of Canada especially to support us in this work. So you can contact angelfire101 at protonmail.com or uh, Republic National Council at protonmail.com to be involved specifically in that. Now I want to share with you as well other material that's in this release. In the appendix, uh, one is the eviction and appointment order issued to me on March 4, 2008 by C.M. Capilano, Jerry Capilano, who actually was there the day that William Coombs and me and 50 other people went into Holy Rosary Cathedral, March 17, 2008, and reclaimed it. He was there, and he issued four years before that this uh, eviction order against the churches and the one giving me the legal right of entry into all of them. The problem hasn't been that we lack the, the lawful authority to do The problem is we don't have the numbers of people to stand with us because people are scared. Even atheists are scared of taking on these churches. And you can call a protest on any issue and get hundreds, thousands of people. But on the issue of genocide of children by these churches, you'd be lucky to get five or ten traditionally. We have to change that because it's a canker of an ongoing crime that's destroying us from within until we wash it clean through our personal and collective action. And as part of these documents, there's also something else that was issued on August 19, 2022. It's called the Turo Wampum Proclamation Against Canadian Churches. It was a proclamation of banishment and confiscation issued against the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches by more than just the Squamish elders. Uh, these were elders from the Ahouset, the New Chalmuth, the uh, Chilcotin, the Cree, the Métis, the Anishinaabek, Huron, Mohawk, Haudenosaunee, Mi'kmaq, Dene, and Inuit peoples across Canada, standing on their land law jurisdiction. They, according to the great law, it says, we the elders assembled at council fire proclaim that these churches and their agents are hereby and forever banished from our nations anywhere in Canada. They must immediately depart or face arrest by our peacekeepers. The properties, assets, and lands now owned by these churches anywhere in Canada are forfeited and confiscated by our people as reparations owed to us by these churches for stealing our lands and for the genocide committed against generations of our people. This proclamation authorizes our people and peacekeepers to enforce our decision by immediately evicting these churches from our nations and arresting those who will not comply and by seizing and occupying all of these churches' lands and properties and assets. We offer this proclamation to our indigenous relatives across Mother Earth and urge them and other nations to take similar actions against these genocidal churches, especially the Church of Rome, which is everywhere in the world. This proclamation reclaims our stolen lands and fulfills the prophecy of the great peacemaker Daganawida, who foresaw that our lands would be invaded by a two-headed snake from the east who would fool and destroy many of our people but would one day be killed by our sacred fire. We are killing that Vatican snake, and by the way, folks, that's what Vatican means, serpent. 
and reestablishing the great law of balance that unites all free and sovereign people within the eternal circle of existence. We place our names and guiding spirits to this proclamation and call for it to be read and enacted across sacred Mother Earth. We endorse the disestablishment of these churches according to the order of C.M. Capilano of March 4, 2008, and we name Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice, and others in the International Kamala Court and the Republic of Canada as peacekeepers for our nations. Again, this was issued a council fire in the eastern woodlands on August 19, 2022, and communicated to our Republic of Canada liaison officer, Gano Geshiwe Gikido, which is my name in Anishinaabek, Eagle Strong Voice. And the third piece of evidence is, of course, the International Kamala Court of Justice verdict of February 25, 2013, which under international law found, I call them the dirty 30, 30 defendants, including the Queen of England, Joseph Ratzinger, the Pope who stepped down, Pope Benedict, three other cardinals, and heads of churches and governments across Canada, found them all guilty, convicted them to life imprisonment without parole, and all loss of authority. It's one of the things that prompted the formation of the Republic of Canada, because without any lawful authority, Canada needed a new government, and that's exactly what we're creating from the grassroots. So these are some of the lawful means by which we can act. How we are acting? Well, the excuse me, I've got to rest my voice a bit here, but uh, um, the verdict and sentence banishing these convicted churches that seizes all their property and gives us a legal right of entry. Um, is not just a thing we, a nice idea. It's a legal requirement, a moral requirement, as we've talked about in that document. How we do it? Well, first of all, through direct actions, and those are ongoing. One of the things we've done is in Vancouver, if you go down to the corner of the scene of the crime, Richards and Dunsmere, you'll see a big Catholic cathedral called Holy Rosary. That's the one we occupied and seized and banished in 2008. And right across from it is a park that a number of years ago we reclaimed and renamed the William Coombs Memorial Park. And people love uh, the homeless and others who we've encouraged, they begin to camp out there. And there will be actions there at the William Coombs Memorial Park um, to start to, again, the, this reclamation process. Because, folks, the entire city of Vancouver has now been legally handed over to us under the law. And we know it's a, a law because the police stood back when we showed it to them. Now, as part of that, there'll be delegations going to the Vancouver City Council saying these churches have been nullified and the land is now under the authority of the Indigenous Nations and the Republic of Canada. Therefore, you, the city of Vancouver, have to nullify all church licenses and all tax exemptions for these criminal churches or your accessories to convicted criminal bodies and you will be tossed out at the next election. So people anywhere in the world can and should do that. I know that our our friends in Australia and America have done that. Uh, they've gone recently to city governments uh, and said it's time to nullify the tax exemption, especially to the Church of Rome, or your accessories to a crime, and we'll remember that at the next election. That's hitting politicians at their weak point, which, of course, Sun Tzu says you always do. Strike at an enemy where they're weak. But we've also notified the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and all Crown officials to stand down and aid us in the enforcement of these court orders through deputizing. We've already done that successfully. We've gotten police to stand under authority 
and either stand back or, and not interfere or actively support us. And those are some of the means that we're taking in action. Now, of course, there's also church actions where we go in, we leave the information, we get up and give impromptu talks in the church saying you're uh, part of a criminal conspiracy, this church has been forfeited, you have to leave, go and worship elsewhere. And we find when you do that, you see, the churches are so sensitive. They know they're guilty. Um, they have an enormous guilty conscience, and they can be easily provoked. And we find even if one or two of us do this, it evokes a tremendous response and gives us a power way beyond our numbers. We prove that. There are only two dozen of us who forced this issue across Canada, forced out the truth of genocide. It wasn't numbers that did it. It was strategic position. And doing what Sun Tzu says in the Art of War, you don't rely on people or numbers. You rely on seizing the chi, the essential energy or strategic situation, striking at the right moment and place. And we have that right moment and place now once again. So um, we, we do that. We do all these tactics. And we literally, when we build up our numbers, we go in and reclaim these churches. Now, we found in the past the best way to do that is by finding the people who have nothing to lose. Because the first argument you get from people who have any means in this world is, is it going to be threatened by what I do? Uh, we find that the homeless, the people who have already been targeted, and that's why the natives were such great allies in this and still are, is because they have nothing left to lose. They're the ones who occupied these churches. They're the ones who have been leading this campaign. So find those kinds of people. I know, for example, our sister Georgina Cameron on Australia has been going in single-handedly to these churches, and she's been assaulted, a 69-year-old woman, uh, at the time on crutches, was physically assaulted at Lumen Christi Catholic Church in Wollongong, Australia, by the church goons, and uh, ordered by the archbishop there. And we've got more of that, um, those examples of that, how the power of even one person acting on the truth, saying no to this ongoing genocide, it gives you a power way beyond your means. Because don't forget, this is a spiritual battle we're in, and we have great unseen allies. I knew that when one of the things that hasn't been mentioned, but will be, of course, is when I was in Rome, October 11, 2009, I did an exorcism ceremony right at the Vatican in St. Peter's Square. Not touched or bothered by any Vatican official, which was kind of interesting because they normally jump on any kind of demonstrator. The next morning, a tornado hit the center of Rome, and that week, the European media began to report for the first time these crimes. So there is a power behind us that we can't calculate but works through us and blows away this corruption and this criminality, but only when we have the courage to act first and then it acts through us. So I want to urge people to remember that all the time. Well, finally, in the last five minutes, I want to uh, talk briefly, and we ran out of time again, but we'll do it more next week. What is our long-term alternative to this? Well, it's, it's as we've said, a personal reclamation, a spiritual reclamation, and a political one. And the maybe the political one is the easiest. It's the sovereign republic of Canada, which had to come into being because the Crown and Canadian political authority was lawfully, morally nullified by its conviction. And, as we mentioned earlier, by the fact that in 1649, the British Crown was lawfully deposed by Parliament and the people during the revolution in that country that created the English Republic. So our alternative already exists within Canada, in Canada, but around the world, too. We've sparked what's called the Republic Alliance. We've got groups now in over 11 countries on last count who are setting up 
sovereign republics breaking out of the corporate system, which, as we know, is not based on law, but uh, rule by decree through administrative tribunals, not common law courts, not accountable authorities. And that Republic Alliance is actively building that alternative. It's really our answer to the global corporatocracy, because we talked about omnicide earlier. That's hitting all of us. The eradication of human liberties and human life by this corporate machine, this COVID technocratic bioweapon-based regime that's destroying humanity. And we are in an omnicide we all must resist. Well, the alternative that we've created are these sovereign Kramala republics. So again, to be part of that in whatever nation you're in, write to Republic National Council at protonmail.com. And uh, there's also a very important book folks can read. It's called The Case for Canada. You can get that along with all my books at Amazon.com. Just put in Kevin Annett, A-N-N-E-T-T. And Establishing Liberty, The Case for Canada, outlines the program for replacing Crown Authority. And especially you might want to read in this program um, the section on church and state, how we nullify all um, churches that were involved in the genocide. We, we nullify all tax exemptions for churches, separate totally uh, religion from civil society. And um, so that's something that people need to read to look at the long-term alternative to this. And finally, I want to remind folks that uh, next week there will be actions all over Canada, uh, William Coombs Memorial Park, uh, Monday, June 12th. Be there at 11 a.m. The uh, local Indigenous people and others will be holding a press conference uh, announcing the beginning of this reclamation campaign again. So in Vancouver, that's next Monday, June 12th, 11 a.m., a press conference and service there at the William Coombs Memorial Park at Richards and Dunsmuir in downtown Vancouver. The next day, Tuesday, 9.30 a.m., go to the Vancouver City Council meeting. There will be a petition to have them stand down from any support from these churches, nullifying the tax exemptions and Vancouver City licensing for the Catholic, Anglican, United Churches. And there will be teachings throughout that week and beyond, reclamation picnics, sit-ins at these churches, and other ways to reclaim the country for all of us. Elsewhere, of course, anywhere in the world, there can be direct actions and teach-ins. Uh, there are being planned, and you can follow all of that, murderbydecree.com, republicofkanata.org. Now, under murderbydecree.com, go to ITCCS Updates. That'll have all our latest news. Republicofkanata.org, just look, breaking news. And you can write to me, Kevin Handy, to go strong voice, at angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Now, we are... Um, especially thankful for all of you new listeners today, especially the human rights observers and peacekeepers from the different indigenous nations and around the world. We welcome your uh, arrival during the summer on the west coast of Canada to help expose and stop the ongoing genocide by China and other corporate powers against the, or all of us, but especially the surviving indigenous nations. And we're going to go out on another great song, which we like, and it's Farewell to the Crown. Because don't forget, it isn't just a matter of undoing them. They're already undone. They do not exist. The crown monarchy of any sort, whether it's secular monarchs or religious monarchs, like that idiot in the funny hat in Rome, they don't exist under the law of God and mankind. And so with that, this is Kevin Andit, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you for listening. Please use the show today and post it widely as a teaching tool for bringing more of the people into our movement to reclaim Mother Earth and our own minds and hearts and bodies and lives for ourselves and for the future generations. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. 